0: From your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 32, Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All Out Attack. fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel and I'm Nathan Marchand. And in this episode, we will be covering the 2001 film Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah Giant Monsters All Out Attack.
1: What a mouthful of a title. I gotta say that again.
0: (laughs) Next to the original... Godzilla film from 1954. This is the highest rated film on internet movie database in the Godzilla series. And I can understand why. It's in large part
1: because of the director we have this time around, which is Shusuke Kaneko, who's best known for doing his 90s Gamera trilogy.
0: This is one of our outliers for the uh, Shinsei or Millennium series. Um, And we will be going back to two more normal movies after this one, but this one and uh, the 2004 one are are definitely our outliers. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Stylistically, this is very different. Quite. (laughs) Our related topics for this episode are the election of Koizumi, the USS Greenville collision, and the many other events of 2001. But first, let's do our part one description of this film. Take it away, Nate. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio.
1: Godzilla is the wrathful avatar for the collective wills of the souls of those who died in the Pacific theater of World War II at the hands of the Japanese military. He kills and destroys purposefully and without mercy. Baragon, Mothra, and King Ghidorah are the guardian monsters, ancient deities sworn to protect the homeland, not the nation or people, of Japan. They defend the natural world, so they show no regard for collateral damage. Yuri Tachibana... An ambitious reporter for the fake documentary maker BS Digital Q, investigates the strange history of Godzilla and the Guardian monsters. Her father, Admiral Teizo Tachibana, is a caring and patriotic officer in the Japanese Navy who seeks to defend his nation against Godzilla. Yuri's friend, Teruaki Takeda, is a writer for BS Digital Q who helps Yuri with her investigation and keeps her out of trouble. The human and kaiju plotlines are largely unified. However, the characters do have lives and/or jobs unconnected to the monsters. A prominent subplot deals with Yuri's relationship to her father, forming part of the film's emotional core. While the guardian monsters do cause trouble, Godzilla is the problem in this film. Baragon battles Godzilla at Mount Kamiyama, but is killed. The JSDF deploys a squadron of fighter jets to attack Godzilla, but he destroys them. Mothra and King Ghidorah fight Godzilla in Yokohama but Mothra is killed saving Ghidorah. Godzilla decimates the JSDF forces in the city before Mothra's energy transfers to Ghidorah, reviving him, and their battle moves underwater. Godzilla then defeats Ghidorah. The problem is solved by both the kaiju and the humans. The spirits of all three guardian monsters fly into Godzilla and pull him underwater. Admiral Tachibana pilots the submarine Satsuma carrying a D3 missile into the fray, but Godzilla swallows the submarine. Inside, Tachibana fires the missile into Godzilla's throat. Godzilla resurfaces and charges his atomic ray, but the beam fires from his wound. He sinks into the water and explodes from the pressure. The script by Keiji Hasangawa, Masahiro Yokotani, and director Shusuke Kaneko is a simple plot with an involved mythology, focused story, and rich themes. The film was given a budget of 1.2 billion yen, roughly 9.4 million dollars, which was larger than the two previous Millennium Series films. Special effects were directed by Makoto Kamiya and Shinji Higuchi, both of whom worked with Kaneko on his Gamera trilogy. They scaled back on digital effects in favor of traditional tokusatsu techniques, using the former to enhance the latter. New suits and puppets were created for all the monsters, most of them with vastly different new designs. The size of the creatures, especially Godzilla, is denoted quite well in this entry. The miniature work ranks as some of the best since the Showa series, paying attention to many small details like billowing dust. This film is unique in the franchise in that it is a dark satire. The humor has an almost nihilistic edge. This makes it the gravest Godzilla film since 1984's The Return of Godzilla. With its many supernatural elements, it's definitely more of a fantasy film. This is the most experimental film in the Millennium series and one of the boldest entries in the franchise. Kaneko made audacious choices by making Ghidorah the hero against a purely evil Godzilla, and by featuring Mothra without the Shoboji. He dared to alter Godzilla's origin, making him a supernatural creature. This movie reinforces the style of 1954's Godzilla with its dark tone, apocalyptic imagery, error spirituality, patriotism, and social commentary. Godzilla vs. Megaguirus was a box office disappointment, so Toho hired Kaneko, who was hot off the success of his Gamera trilogy, to direct their next Godzilla film. It was hoped his name would attract kaiju fans and general moviegoers alike. By taking Godzilla back to his roots, Toho intended to bring old-time Godzilla fans back to the series. When released in Japan December 15, 2001, it grossed 2.71 billion yen about twenty million and sold 2.4 million tickets. However, this was partly due to being on double bill with the children's anime film Hamtaro Ham Ham Big Land Adventure. The film premiered in the U.S. at the Pickwick Theatre July 19, 2002 as part of g 10 and was later shown on the Sci-Fi Channel in 2003 and released on DVD by TriStar in 2004 and on Blu-ray in 2014. No edits were made to the dubbed version. However, the dub script makes several major deviations from the original. In the original version, a Chinese man says, Good luck, everybody, to the JSDF and the Japanese woman with him translates that into Japanese. In the dub titles, her translation is, yes, good luck everyone, you're gonna die. There is an obvious mistranslation where a soldier misses Godzilla with a D3 missile and hits Ghidorah instead. He curses in Japanese, but the dub has him cry, excellent. The original TriStar DVD has this error in the subtitles, but it was corrected in the Blu-ray, though Tachibana still says, good. There are a few different forces at play in this film. BS Digital Q is a television network that creates fake, low budget documentaries to get ratings. When a village leader objects to them filming, Yuri tells him that their program could create publicity for his village, which placates him. The restless souls of the Pacific War dead use Godzilla as a tool of vengeance against Japan for forgetting the atrocities they committed. In other words, Japan is haunted by a past it would rather forget. Japanese religion and mythology play a huge part, particularly with the Guardian monsters who owe no allegiance to the nation or people of Japan. Ancient shrines and artifacts are frequently destroyed, which releases the spirits that awaken the guardian monsters. Like Ashiro Honda before him, Kaneko is a pacifist, so an anti-war sentiment pervades the film. Confronting the past and owning up to it is a prominent theme, which is something Japan continues to wrestle with as a nation. There is a parallel theme of reconciliation. Godzilla's vengeful hatred is counterproductive to the point Godzilla self-destructs, The Chinese man says good luck to the JSDF, showing that dwelling on the past is not good and that the Japanese should concentrate on healing. Faith is touched upon in Yuri's belief that the Guardian Monsters will save Japan. Admiral Tachibana expresses his patriotism when he tells Yuri not to salute him but his fallen comrades and the Guardian Monsters for defeating Godzilla. The implication is that modern Japan has come a long way since the war and will honor the sacrifices of its soldiers. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision
0: Radio. In part two of the podcast, we gave our opinion and have some discussion about the film in question. So uh, what did you think of this one?
1: I like it a lot, although it's had to grow on me a little bit, though I would dare say this might be the best entry in the Millennium series. The thing is, is that this is a movie with a lot of subtleties in it, so you have to watch it more than once to pick up on it, and it also helps to know a bit more about Japanese culture going in.
0: I was really blown away by the atmosphere and the the story is so different, and I, I like the fantasy element, too. That was
1: something that uh, Kaneko did intentionally, because much like he did with his Gamera trilogy, because he made, those are more of a fantasy... And he didn't think that you could scientifically justify creatures this large. So he intentionally went the fantasy route because he felt that what made it more acceptable, maybe even more believable.
0: This movie is really fun to watch, though. It's entertaining and sometimes scary even, but engaging the whole time. There's a lot of nostalgia in it, but it doesn't seem like J.J. Abrams, let's just plant all this stuff in here because this seems more story-driven, while at the same time loving what is all about the original. Because this is behaving like we've seen the first movie, and then this is acting like it's the first sequel. Because we're we're ignoring everything else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, which so- is the trademark of the Millennium series. Mm-hmm. When we first started talking about possibly even beginning to do this podcast, we were at another podcast together, and we were... I was doing a cinema selections thing like I had done a number of times on that one and I chose GMK as the movie. And one thing that I love about this movie, though, is all the stuff with how it treats the military because this is one of our more military movies. And we got to talking about that. And I think initially you said that you didn't really care for it all that much. And I said, no, that's one of the great parts about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was it was interesting because I wasn't expecting to be brought in for that segment, but uh, I didn't even know you were going to ta- be talking about a Godzilla movie. And uh, our mutual friends uh, on that podcast knew that I was a Godzilla fan, so they asked me to join at the last minute. And then we had, we had such a nice time going back and forth that at the end they said, hey, you guys should start your own podcast. So there you go, the secret origin of
0: Kaiju Vision Radio. <laughs> yeah this movie was centered around the creation of this podcast, and it's uh it's appropriate that this one be the one. I think I chose the movie because it was it was not a movie like I had done yet in that in, in cinema selections. No, I the think others the, were mostly classics.
1: yeah, I think the closest you came to that because I, I listened to that podcast every week, and uh, the closest you came was you did the
0: never ending story. That was the newest movie I did, yeah, actually. That was yeah. 1984. Mm-hmm. But it was mm-hmm. a lot of uh, earlier classic movies from, like, 40s, 50s. A lot mm-hmm. of them. A lot of which I need to track down and watch. <laughs> yeah, I still love the list that I came up with for that one. I had two really big moments in loving Godzilla where I. it was about about halfway through the, the first decade of the 2000s, and that was when the number of DVDs available started jumping up in higher numbers. And so... I got all the movies that I could get a hold of and watched those. And then probably around 2010, 11, 12, somewhere around there, there were more of out of DVDs. So I got a whole bunch more and GMK was definitely one of the biggest, most important ones in there. I still think it's one of the best ones in the series.
1: I, I definitely agree with you on that. And I, I remember when this movie was about to be released, uh, I was subscribing to G-Fan at the time. <laughs> there was so much hype around it. The, uh, there was a whole bunch of coverage in, in the magazine, and people were all excited because they were... It was because of the of the director. People were gushing over his Gamera trilogy because they were saying that his Gamera trilogy is the is three of the best kaiju movies ever made, and that he was going to do the same thing with this one. So it, it was crazy, and I do kind of wonder if maybe the the first time I saw this movie, it had been tainted by that a little bit because the initial review for the film in G Fan said that. Didn't quite live up to the hype, but like I said, I I've really grown to appreciate this one even more as time has gone on. So I think I might disagree with that G fan
0: review. Now this movie begins and ends with the military. Mm-hmm. Now the ending, we have a little teaser, but really the, yeah. the ending is the military. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. They're professional. They're well-dressed like the scene at the beginning they seem to be well in control of the situation, and it's a good way to start a movie. When we even have our, we even have a little tracking shot with uh, Tachibana walking down the hallway and everything. Mm-hmm. And he he gives us a little crash course in JSDF history, which, which was kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, stuff we've been talking about. Uh huh. Yeah, our, our <laughs> JSDF discussion is episode five. Mm hmm.
1: And apparently, there's a lot of kaiju stuff that's been going on over the years. I mean, they primarily talk about. Godzilla attacking in 1954 but they mentioned a few other things and I love the little joke that those two younger guys have where they say yeah wasn't there a monster that came to New York the Americans thought it was Godzilla." It's like yeah our experts looked at it it wasn't yeah long. <laughs> a nice little joke about Godzilla 98 because the
0: Millennium series loves making fun of that movie our beginning scene before the titles we have the submarine down there, the Satsuma, which is...
1: Yeah, named after Kenpichiro Satsuma. Yeah, obviously. This Heisei voice, uh, the Heisei suit actor.
0: Yeah, obviously a name drop there. The music starts, which I love the soundtrack for this movie. I, oh, have it. My I goodness. bought it. But it, it starts out, it sounds like Jaws.
1: Yes, it does. Very much.
0: <laughs> yeah, the music in this is is brilliant.
1: It is so different than I think anything that we're used to with all of these other composers. But this was done by Ko Otani, who worked with Kaneko. You'll, you'll notice this, a lot of the people that Kaneko worked on, uh, had work with him on the Gamera Trilogy, helped him out with this. And Ko Otani is, brings a very unique flair and
0: style in the music to this film. Our first scene after the titles, we begin with somebody filming something. So it's, or at least video recording, and uh, which is little meta already oh yeah somebody else's production this company that they work for is bs digital q it's a, it's a nod to ks digital q which is a speaker company and the bs is a nod to well we know what bs means and i'm not trying to bs you here but uh it's, it's pretty uh interesting i like especially
1: it. i think it's 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 definitely a bit of satire because what do these guys do? They make fake low budget documentaries, yeah. although they try to call them docudramas. Yeah, which I I think was taking a shot, maybe not at re possibly reality tv but we there's been a lot of shows that are on tv particularly at this time that were all about the paranormal and all of that and they're trying to say that oh look we found evidence of something paranormal
0: <laughs> like ancient aliens
1: yeah but i think the the movie is saying all that stuff is bunk it's all fake
0: <laughs> yes and then koichi ueda who is a wonderful fun actor in a lot of these movies he has these smaller parts and he shows up as the community leader, and he's like, "What? hey, these are b s Get out of our town, essentially." And they're saying, "Oh no, remember everything with Salem witch trials, and so we can gin up stuff that way and get you publicity. And then he's like, "Oh, okay. <laughs> That's fine, but these people were fake news before fake news existed. I know <laughs> and, and well, I, I think it... bark in basement of the airwaves et cetera mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Well, and I think it's really interesting because we've seen reporters before in these uh, in these movies, but and so we have some here now, but
0: they're no longer paragons of truth and virtue. Yeah, they're not mainstream media. No. And, and, and because we've all in all throughout the show series, especially it's been reporters from, you know, actual credible real news agencies that have to be careful about what they print.
1: I know. This is why it's it's taking Concepts and conventions that we're that we're used to, and turning them on their ears, Mm -hmm. which is I think is was one of Kaneko's intentions with this movie is taking the familiar and just putting a completely different slant on it.
0: Let's talk about Yuri. Yuri and the actress who plays her, they're amazing. Yes, (laughs) she's amazing. The whole female lead idea is amazing. They should have been doing this like earlier in these movies, really. <laughs> it's a good it's a good idea, it's a good fit. And the guys like it. Mm-hmm. And I do too. <laughs>
1: she is a beautiful woman.
0: Yes. I had forgotten
1: how beautiful she was.
0: Yeah. And she has this sincerity to her. hmm That just really is natural and relatable. And she's written Very well. The lines that she has, she delivers very well. Everybody delivers their lines well in this. There's also a big difference between this and the Heisei movies as far as the acting. (laughs) You can tell that the actors are really into it. Just like our last film, Megagoras. What I love most about Yuri, she's kind of unscrupulous because she's
1: going along with these staged events to get ratings. But then she stumbles upon something that's actually real. And it's like her... Reporter instincts actually kick in, and she starts looking into this because she knows it's real, and she wants to know more about what's going on, which is why it's, it's interesting that we have this character who doesn't start off as this paragon of virtue, and then she starts doing the right thing.
0: Well, it's also part of her character, though. She's, she knows that this is BS, and so she's not going to just enjoy doing this for her life she optimally wants a job way better than this that does cover real stuff. So she's, when she goes to her boss and says, I want to do this because this is something actually serious for a change, even though the boss is like, Wh- whatever, but, but she wants to do something better. She wants to improve her life and all that too. Her relationship with her father is also comes off as really genuine. Oh yeah. Um, I, I love how they just show the, the, the framed photo of her mother for, a really short period of time mm-hmm. and that's all we get and we move on yeah we don't need anymore it's because you made your point you showed you showed the frame photo for two seconds and that's all you needed you don't need to thank heavens you, nobody wrote a scene where they talk about that <laughs> and now we're finally with the last one we had a script that was quite well done and this one's really well done too the the characters are clear their motivations are clear it makes sense The part where she's at the restaurant with Takeda and she's like, well, as a woman, you're supposed to do what you're told. That really sucks, doesn't it? But she wants to break through that. Yeah. She wants to break through these walls that are are up and she wants to excel just as much as a man would. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, it's a short moment. This isn't the whole movie by any means at all. Yeah. But it makes the point. Mm-hmm. it makes the point and it moves on
1: it's just like the with the scene that, that they have afterward, where Takeda takes her home to her father and she because she's drunk, she can't get home by herself, and they have that wonderful little moment when he knocks on the door and and his her dad answers and he's being kind of gruff with the guy, and she says, oh no it's it's fine here here you know here she is, she's okay, <laughs> and then he talks with her a little bit afterward, and they don't make a big deal about her coming home drunk and or anything. No. It's just the next scene. She's fine. She's not hungover. Or the scene. Anything. Well, the and, scene
0: after that, she's probably a little hungover. But at yeah, the same but she's time, just making
1: breakfast, and they yeah. have a nice little chat, and it has nothing to do and with she, and the she, monsters. And, or and he
0: apologizes, and then she apologizes, and there's a coherence to the the dynamic between her and mm-hmm. her father.
1: And we get to see another side to her father because because the Takeda says this later. He says, "Your dad seems kind of tough and." But we see in that scene that he's he's very caring, he's very loving, and he's just. And she hap- says he's not bad. Yeah, he's not bad. Yeah, he's. But he is an officer in the Japanese Navy, and when he's got that uniform on and he's you know serving his country, you know he very much comes across as a very dutiful and proficient
0: soldier. So this whole thing with destroying the shrines that we see in the beginning of this movie, and for a while, probably the first third, right? Yeah. Did you get what's going on?
1: Yes, because uh, we, we get several scenes like this. The we're seeing because one of the major themes of the film is because what we're seeing is a bunch of young people who are
0: desecrating their heritage. But the old man is too. This is true, right? So what's going on is is that the old man or the young people or whoever, when when these little the statues or the shrines when they are destroyed. They're releasing spirits, mm-hmm. and then the spirits connect to the guardian monsters, and that helps them wake up. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of young people that are careless, and and then the bikers are a little bit older. Yeah, and then the old man, and so they they go. It's a number of different parts of society, but a lot of it's younger people. Yeah, and it is also is it implied that that Mothra kills eleven people it pretty well is. You
1: could say that the monster yeah. them and
0: sucks them under the water and Yeah. Yeah, so, so literally the the monster larvae That was another people.
1: very jaws-like scene too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's like the opening of, of of Jaws. It's also interesting how this movie is probably the first movie in the Godzilla series where people dying is is both scary and sometimes funny. Yeah. <laughs> and the movie also wants you to want some of them gone. Like yeah. the young people that do that to the dog, because clearly the movie wants them dead.
1: Yes,
0: <laughs> it, it, it wants the audience to want them dead too. But well, we have some of these more comical deaths that occur in in, in this, <laughs> this is, movie. This is the first. It's kind of dark.
1: Yeah the the one that really sticks out to me is the that poor woman in the hospital because she sees Godzilla <laughs> coming and she starts freaking out. It looks like she's well, and got she got a, her leg in a cast, so she can't get away.
0: Yeah, because Godzilla entered her. Yeah. Because,
1: yeah, yeah because ah, that's right. when he showed uh-huh.
0: up at Ogasawara, that's when he injures her. Yeah. And then she ends up so she's trying to, get away. Yeah. to the mainland mm-hmm. after that, and she's recovering, and then she sees him coming again. Yeah. And
1: she's trying to get away and get away, but then Godzilla just walks by the hospital, and she, she breathes a sigh of relief, and then his tail hits the building and destroys it.
0: <laughs> the actress that gets killed in, in that scene she's been in some other movies and stuff and there there are actually a lot of cameos in this movie of various actors and it's people that either wanted to be in it or were approached by the director or producer etc mm-hmm. you know they they able they were able to get in the guy who, who tries to commit suicide in the suicide forest mm-hmm. he is somebody too that's a cameo ah and also the old man is a is is an actor who was in a lot of stuff too. Oh, back like sort of a back in the old days. This guy did a lot of stuff, kind of oh. cameo. Yeah, the bikers in this movie—that's mm-hmm. more towards the beginning—and then uh, Barragon, yes, uh, gets them. Mm-hmm. But before that, they're defiling shrines.
1: Yeah, statues. destroying
0: them, shattering them. Yeah, and I was trying to figure out what was going on with that. Because yeah, they're
1: way, they're uh, they're carrying some banners with them. Yeah,
0: you know, I wanted to know what that meant and. Essentially what I got was, it was, it translates to the divine anger riot. But when I uh, put Google translate on those characters, it, it says wolves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's
1: wolves, as well. divine anger, riot or divine anger group. Yeah.
0: Something, something like that. Like that is with the divine part. They're possibly proclaiming themselves to be gods.
1: Potentially. Yeah.
0: Which that would go also be the reasoning why they are destroying the shrines and the statues mm-hmm. and stuff. And then they get their comeuppance when Baragon kills a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Because, says, again,
1: the Guardian monster's loyalty is to the Japanese homeland, not necessarily to the Japanese people.
0: There are chrysanthemums that are on the leader's jacket mm-hmm. as well, which chrysanthemum represents the emperor.
1: Mm, hmm. Hmm.
0: And the flags that they're carrying around are kind of these banners. that I mean, it's sort of like a right-wing flavor mm-hmm. that these bikers have. Mm-hmm.
1: I remember reading someplace that Shusuke Kaneko was, who directed and co-wrote the screenplay on this, was partially inspired by the the rise of Nippon Kaigi at this time, which was they're a very right-wing Japanese organization. And it makes sense, especially considering that in you can interpret what they're doing as disregarding Japanese history and their heritage.
0: Yeah, so there's all this hidden meaning and all these little parts of this movie. It's mm-hmm. kind of, That's, interesting.
1: It's very much a thing with Kaneko because you know I've seen his Gamera trilogy, and I really think Kaneko is one of those Japanese directors where the more you know about the cultural context, the more you're going to get out of those movies. It's just that we, as a non-native audience, we're not going to pick up on all of them.
0: The kids at, at when, the, when we're at Ogasawara, the kids say that they, that the military killed Godzilla, right? Mm-hmm. So they're referring to the first movie, mm-hmm. which that's incorrect. Yeah. Then they say, well, how could, how could they kill Godzilla? He's, he would make a good pet. And then the guy that, that's um, at the urinal there, and then he gets killed. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was in Final Wars. Oh. Yeah. The girl who gets killed in the hospital was in Final Wars. That That was what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Knew it was something. We're not going to go into every single thing that this movie references because (laughs) it's just too big. Yeah. (laughs) There are a lot of references. There's Rodan. It it obviously uh, goes back to the original Godzilla a lot. Yes. The first movie. Our framed photo of the lucky dragon number five. Yeah. We, We get reference after reference and then this movie also references stuff like Blair Witch Project mm-hmm. and, and all these other movies like we're all over the place with with, uh, with references
1: I, the only one that I noticed that seemed terribly obvious was the, that scene when Godzilla shows up to fight Barragon, and he's coming up over the mountain and it's like that looks like the original yeah. movie Yeah, that's the most obvious one I could think of
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's it's that one's pretty obvious, and the th- when I mentioned Rodan, you-, you know what I'm talking about, right? The photo. Ah, mm-hmm. yeah, they're doing the photo, and then she has the look. Mm-hmm. The exact you know, it's our it's our latest version of that scene that I talked about in the Rodan episode. It's one of the gr- coolest things in the movie. Mm. Is mm-hmm. that is that part when she's posing for the photo, and then she sees, and, and this yes. and in this case, they're taking a picture in front of a kaiju, and then the other worse kaiju. Uh, appears and so different that way, but yeah, it's end for sure.
1: <laughs> I, w- I was thinking when I saw that scene, you know, I, uh, that if this was made now, you know, it'd just be a couple of dumb teenagers standing there with selfie sticks,
0: looking like idiots. <laughs> but if, especially if it was in this movie, though, we'd want them killed too.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's one of several. Uh, that scene is one of several instances where we have these young people who just don't get it. Yeah, the they see a monster coming and their first thought is not run away. It's dangerous. It's
0: I want oh, a look. picture. Uh-huh. Look at this. You know, because so, well, it's, it's like the first Ghidorah film when Ghidorah appears in that little crowd of people. It's like, oh, and, you yeah, wonderment at it. And then it starts shooting gravity beams and then scream and run. Yeah, but, but it, you it, should be screaming and running at first. Yeah, you shouldn't be saying, "Oh, it's cute." No, this movie makes a point of, "Oh, you sh- you should definitely not get too close."
1: Yeah, but but we, we've we've talked about this a couple of times. Where there there are these multiple scenes where you just have these these young people who just seem to be they're reacting to things in ignorance, and sometimes they react in belligerence. Sometimes it's more innocent, you know, it's saying like, "Oh, Godzilla would be such a great pet," mm-hmm. or but then they do things like desecrate shrines and statues and. And, and and stuff like that and i think it was kaneako's little way of trying to show the the disconnect that a lot of japanese young people had with their past yes
0: and, and how the past is disappearing like that whole thing of you know people are forgetting people are forgetting about the past and and the, the stuff that japan did in the war and all those kinds of things people are glossing it over is just that bad time or whatever. You know? Yeah.
1: Which and is the, the
0: number of people who lived through it, they're dying. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's up to you know, younger generations to, to understand that. And it's that sort of thing is an issue
1: that Japan continues to wrestle with. It's a very real thing that's still ongoing. And I applaud Kaneko for wanting to address it in this movie.
0: It's one of the most important things in the movie, but also the. It's interesting how the the younger people, when they're destroying the shrines, or, or when the guy uses it as a step so that he can hang himself, that he's when that statue is broken because that is more letting the spirits out inadvertently, mm-hmm. but the old man, he's on purpose destroying it because he knows what it's doing. Yes, so we have accidental letting out the spirits and then we have intentional letting out the spirits
1: Mm -hmm.
0: regarding forgetting the old man specifically says that the Japanese want to forget about what happened in the war, meaning that what the Japanese empire was guilty of. And then the, the whole thing about the Japanese empire dealing out more than they took, which that's like mathematically he's right there. But then the people who don't forget are looked at as better people in this movie. And also, Godzilla killed Yuri's grandparents. Yes. Yeah. There's a little flashback. It's not looked at that way. Yeah. It's him talking about his parents and her father. But obviously, you really, oh, yeah, it's her grandma and grandpa that were killed by Godzilla. So that may be one reason why she and her father take things so seriously. Yeah, definitely her father. Because she doesn't think, oh, cute, look at Godzilla. Oh, no. That's so cute. No. No. She's She's never of that opinion. No. She understands this a lot more.
1: Yeah. It, it makes you wonder if some of these other young people we're seeing just, they they don't have those sorts of connections. Yeah, they're
0: living in the here and the now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is another way to read this movie, and that is, is that it's about dwelling on the past.
1: Yeah, because what we have here is the war dead using Godzilla as their vessel of vengeance because they're dwelling on what had happened to them in the war and also resenting the
0: fact that they have been
1: forgotten by the young people.
0: Yeah. And so this is Godzilla, you know, hateful, evil Godzilla wanting to destroy everything and specifically targeting people and all that. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's the thing
1: is, is that we've already talked about how we have people who are forgetting their heritage, forgetting their past, which is what angers these spirits so it's this vicious cycle that keeps getting perpetuated. So this is a this is a complex film. It's addressing both sides of the issue here.
0: Yeah, on one side we have this, and on the other side we have uh, the thing about forgetting history.
1: Mm-hmm. Which certainly makes sense because, as we noted, uh, Kaneko is a pacifist, and this is very much an anti-nationalist film.
0: Yeah, it's more pro-patriotism, mm-hmm. anti-nationalism sort of vibe, yeah. And the whole... Hatred that Godzilla has He ends up Mm self-destructing There's some outside
1: help With that but he essentially Mm self-destructs
0: And that's I guess the symbolism is that All this destructive stuff eventually Will fizzle out in the end And Mm -hmm. suicide itself in a way Mm -hmm. It may take people with it As well So the three of them are at the shrine And it's the one that's by Where Ghidorah is We didn't we couldn't figure this out forever. Yeah. Because they, they look at the video of the, that they're taking. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the video, there are three rays, mm-hmm. yellowish rays sticking out of the ground. Mm-hmm.
1: They're like these three little lines on the, the camera frame.
0: And that's the only thing that we could tell because they say it's gone. Yeah. And I was like, what's gone? Yeah. This is so confusing. <laughs> what are they talking about? We couldn't figure it out. So anyway, Kami, mm-hmm. Japanese spirits. Mm-hmm. Kami are not visible to the human realm. Mm-hmm. But like the, one of the superstitions is that cameras can capture them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's why it's in what they looked at on the device, but they look up and it's gone. Mm-hmm.
1: And this is a concept that we're familiar with because there's been plenty of stories and films and all that about people capturing ghosts on camera.
0: Kami are also mobile and they can nurture and love when they're respected. And they can cause destruction and disharmony when disregarded. Mm-hmm. So perhaps these three rays, yellow rays, they sort of represent maybe three Ghidorah's, you know, Ghidorah's three heads.
1: Or the three guardian monsters.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, but get, probably Ghidorah,
1: op- because that's right above where Ghidorah is it hiding. might be,
0: yeah. Because then the, I guess it's supposed to be ominous that... This is gone yes. because it has the creepiness at the at the end of the scene, like yes. it does. <laughs> but I, I believe that's what it is. But it's something that just drove me nuts because I had no idea what they were talking about, and mm-hmm. I, and and this is one of those things where you just. You reverse the direction of the movie and go back and Mm -hmm. look at it again and again and again through the Mm -hmm. whole scene. It's
1: like, oh, I have no idea what's going on. And it doesn't help that the difference between the establishing shot and what's on the camera is very subtle.
0: Yeah, it is. At about 2843 into the movie, we get our press conference scene about Godzilla. And it's the ton of flash photography that's taking place. There's all the press there. You have to have a scene like this every once in a while in a Godzilla movie. And this is one of the best ones. There's this great, nice sense of gravity. About 38 minutes in, we have our first appearance of Godzilla, which is extremely memorable. Yeah, uh, with the swelling water and then the boat falls. and Which that's another instance of People getting injured or dying, which is partially funny when when they're still in the air and they fall into the ocean.
1: Yeah, and it was a fisherman, so I wonder if if that was kind of referencing back to Godzilla 98 again. I
0: don't (laughs) know.
1: Except this time, I think the fisherman actually died.
0: (laughs) But then at 4156, that's when we get our first Godzilla atomic breath moment. And it's just (sighs) perfect. Any feeling person would have a tough time with that moment when they show the school and the classroom. So that's like, oh, wow! You just punched me in the stomach, but it's a a good punch at least. Yeah, and it's we really needed this in a Godzilla movie too. We haven't had this in a while.
1: Yeah, and it's the first time we see uh, that the Ray is used. He's purposefully targeting people, and then it's we see a mushroom cloud. In the distance. So it's really hammering all of these connotations about nuclear weapons and, and all of that. It's, it's striking imagery.
0: And At 5134, we're in the, towards the end of our Baragon battle, which is really good. It's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, actually. And that's when we get our second use of his atomic breath. And that's incredible. The exp- all, the, all the exploding that's going on when mm-hmm. the ray makes impact with the uh, rock. And then that building that's there. I actually found that on Google Earth. Oh, you Exactly did. where the Baragon battle takes place. And it's, in, it's right by the hot springs. Oh. There. It actually, because it shows that very briefly. The hot springs. And then the part inside that building that Yuri and Takeda are in. That's awesome. Yes. The blowing up of that building. And then the part where they see him out the window as uh-huh. they're running. They, yeah. That's great. But then th- that building breaking apart and the indoor part of it with the two of them, that it looks just absolutely perfect. There, there, there needed to have been more scenes like this than other Godzilla movies. It's a really good idea. To, oh, yeah. To have, to have that kind of stuff going
1: on. Yeah. It's a nice setting, too, for, uh, for this monster battle because it looks like it's in a bit of a canyon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is which is good because poor Barragon tries to tries to get away, and he
0: can't get away. He tries to climb up, and yeah, and that's where we get our third atomic breath, which is fifty two twenty three. Yeah, and then, and that's the one that kills Barragon. Yeah, which the explosions are just fantastic, and it looks so real. Yeah, the effects
1: work in this. It's a testament to what uh, Shinji Yaguchi and uh, all of his compatriots who worked on the Gamera Trilogy. I mean, the Gamera Trilogy is known for its spectacular special effects, but you can see it in this as well. And I think this is one of the reasons why people were really excited in the fan base
0: to see this film. At fifty-two fifty-eight, that's when we get our victim scene, where, where everybody's being hospitalized and triaged. And all, including and all those, Yuri. And yeah, including her, who's in, including yeah Yuri, who's injured. And then that's the scene where she talks to the little boy who that's one of the least annoying little boys in any Japanese kaiju movie ever. <laughs> that, that kid does a good job. Yes. And you need that gravity scene after a scene that preceded it like that.
1: Yeah. And it's not a scene that we get in a lot of these movies. We
0: get very few hospital scenes in these movies, but when we do, it's a big deal. Yeah. Which
1: goes it really a- hits home. It, yeah. it,
0: it shows you the effect of what's going on. And it, it, rather than just empty buildings being destroyed or just stuff like that. Not that that wasn't good too, but you get yeah. my
1: point. Yeah. It, cause it's a very different approach, a very different tone. It's showing the consequences of what's going on. It's hammering home. There are real people.
0: There are really suffering because of what's going on here. Yeah, and meanwhile, I'm sitting there watching and going, well done. Good job. Mm-hmm. This is, this was is good. At 5714 is one of my favorite points in the movie, too, because we get our fighter jet scene. It's filmed very well. Everything that's shown is shown logically, and it's exactly what we would expect to be on the screen. And then the fighter jet part of it falls down, and then it hits that house. And I know. the house just blows up just perfectly. Yeah, it's so well done, Again, too. Again,
1: it's showing us the consequences of what's going on. Here's collateral damage. You know, when these things fall down out of the sky, they cause real problems. Mm-hmm.
0: There's an interesting part of the movie that I have been trying to figure out for a while what on earth was going on. Mm-hmm. And it was the whole thing where these two people, this guy and this woman, they uh, they say something about, you're all going to die?
1: Yeah, which is... Not what they're actually saying. It's one of two instances where this happens in this
0: movie. So actually what's going on is the man is Chinese. Mm-hmm. And he says, good luck to the JSDF.
1: Mm-hmm. And the, the woman is Japanese and she's translating for him.
0: Now, this is we're pretty sure that this was put in there by Kaneko or whoever in order to do what? Sort of display reconciliation. Mm-hmm. At 109.41, that is when Mothra is flying through that part of Yokohama and Godzilla is, he has the atomic breath going and it's, and he's moving as he's using it. And then we get this fantastic scene where Yuri is blown away by all these explosions. It is perfect. Yes, I know. It's a back projection but it's a pretty good back projection and it's just awesome. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's one of the best anybody being blown away by anything parts in any movie ever. <laughs> it was a really good job. Specifically, at 1.16.26 1 is maybe my favorite part of the movie because Godzilla's facing us and then Mothra starts flying behind him and Mothra's literally on fire. <laughs> And that's not an animation. And then the city has so much damage as well in that shot. And there's all this smoke in the air that looks really, really good. And it then, does. and then one eighteen forty nine with the explosion at the dock that's there. Mm-hmm. Godzilla is blown back. And there's just like this rapid set of explosions that occur. And then all these pieces of stuff blow into the water and he's blown back and into the water. Mm-hmm. That's Amazing, that is just pure kaiju fun. Yes, <laughs> and this is the first appearance of Yokohama in any Godzilla movie. That is surprising, which is amazing because it's just a tiny bit southwest of downtown Tokyo. I mean, it's not very far away; it's right there. But then we have the Yokohama Landmark Tower, and that is the now the second tallest building. In Japan, that isn't a radio tower or the Skytree. Oh, really? Um it's, it, but it, At this time, though, it was the tallest building in Japan. Oh. Also, the Yokohama Bay Bridge is a perfect location for a kaiju fight, too. I have the soundtrack for this movie, and I've listened to it so many times, but the, the best track is the track that begins at about 121.46 into the movie, which is our... It, it starts out really low volume really pretty quiet and then it just keeps building up yes and, and i know exactly it, what you're yeah, talking then about then that track ends at the point that the bridge starts getting blown up uh-huh but that that whole like and then it shows her talking to her father about him having to go into the satsuma in order to get godzilla and it gets all tender on us there
1: oh yeah and that's then, probably uh, the most yeah.
0: emotional scene in the
1: entire movie and i would probably say it it's one of my favorite scenes in the in the whole film, and just the little touches in it, because it's moving the plot along. Her father is saying, I'm going to go do this. Someone has to do it. I'm the most experienced. I need to be the one to do this, but they're having this wonderful character moment, and he's telling this random soldier who's there with her, take care of her, make sure she's safe. She likes carte blanche. It'll make her happy, that sort of a thing. It's just all these little things all going on at once. And it's it's because these characters
0: are fleshed out. There's something to do with them. The character work in this movie is spectacular. Yeah. and Maybe it's because we just had all these Heisei movies where that didn't matter. (laughs) A lot of the time, at least. Trying not to be too hard on those movies. But at the same time, there weren't very many moments in those movies where you're like, oh, wow. You know, character. (laughs) (laughs) Something going on like that. And there's plenty of moments that are cinematic between characters, and, and we got plenty of moments for the audience to enjoy. And what makes that scene, I think, even more potent is it's all
1: taking place over the radio. They're not in the mm. same place together.
0: And then she goes to the bridge, and then she has that moment where she's staring directly into the camera, and she's being so sincere about what's going on. Yes. And telling everybody that, That's just... That's maybe one of her best moments. Oh, yeah, right there.
1: uh, That is one. That's another Uh, one of my favorite moments in this because that's when her story hits its peak. That's where it really comes full circle for her, where she's now taking a stand and saying, I'm now going to tell you something that's important and it's truthful. Here are, here's our military taking a stand defending our nation they're doing something important and i want to make sure you all know this she actually even goes so far as to call the military who's out there doing this the
0: warriors saying that they are doing their duty right now and also prefacing that you had we can go into battle without relishing conflict yes it's not a warmongering movie no no
1: it's not. And that's what I love about this, is Kaneko, despite his pacifism, there's no animosity toward the military in this. And yet, it's not glorifying the military. These scenes, I I think, very much express the sort of sentiment and theme that Kaneko was wanting to get across, which is, it's illustrating this, the continuing change in... Japan's attitude toward the military, where it's they're looking at it more positively, and I th- you see that again uh, in our penultimate scene when Yuri is running to meet her father after he's come out of the, the the submarine and they've defeated Godzilla, and he this shows you how smart the script in this movie is. He actually says, "Wait a minute." Need to make sure I'm not radioactive. Radiation. Yeah, <laughs> so stay over there. But the, I think. So but then th- instead of
0: hugging him, what does she do? She, she salutes, salutes him. him.
1: And so, so there's there, there's a practical reason for this is going on, but it makes the scene that much more interesting because she she does that, and then he responds by saying, "Don't salute me. Salute our my fallen comrades and the guardian monsters because they're why we won today." And then he turns around and he sleuths out into the bay. And then she does the
0: same thing. Which is, this isn't the exact location of the bay, I don't think, where the original Godzilla was killed. Right? There's nothing implied about that. But it is still it still is Tokyo Bay. Yes. So there's a little bit of a callback to the original Godzilla film without beating us over the head with some reference or some flashback scene.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still, it's hammering. The point home. It's it's a wonderful note for the human side of the story to end.
0: Oh, absolutely, and it's it it makes you feel something too. I mean, you, it the movie does what it's supposed to do, like what it was in, it was intended to do. I feel that, and so if I was Japanese, I would definitely feel that because I'm not even Japanese, and I'm I understand what the idea of service of the military. Yeah, the I, I
1: think we as Foreigners can appreciate the the general sentiment that's being expressed here because we have. Yeah, it's not like it's some
0: alien thing that we're watching. Yeah, yeah.
1: Because it's it because it, it, we all well most Americans have a, a deep appreciation for our own military. So in we, that
0: they're in that they are devoting themselves and they are giving us their service. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we can understand on that level, but as I said, understanding more about Japanese culture now. I have a greater appreciation for that scene now, too, because I'm seeing how it's reflecting the changes that are going on in Japan and their own changing attitudes. So I now see why the original audience for this would be very appreciative, maybe even a little bit excited by what they saw.
0: Right. Let's examine how the Japanese national spirit is expressed in this movie, because it's like... Two or three different ways almost. yeah um, first, there's the obvious pacifistic Japanese national spirit that is translated from the original film to this with, only with a little bit more appreciation and respect and etc cetera, faith in the military. That's the, but there's it's still a, it still strikes a pacifist tone quite a bit. Mm-hmm. because like I said, you can you can love peace and you can still have faith in the people who are serving you. In the JSDF, this movie's connection to the beasts of Yamato, that whole thing, which that that goes into, it's not as easy to grab a hold of. This this goes back to, like they like what they we were talking about with the monsters protecting the, the homeland homeland of Japan yeah, rather than not protecting the, not the, the nation or the people. Right. It's a very very interesting distinction between all of those. The locations that the guardian monsters appear is also important. Mount Miyoko is where Baragon first appears. And I'm not an expert on this, but it is a pretty important mountain. And I'm not sure exactly what spiritual importance it is. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure there's got to be a reason why they chose that. Mm-hmm. Also, Fuji is one of the locations. Yes. And it's particularly the, the suicide forest that is near yeah. Mount Fuji, which, where uh, Gidra is found. And that's... Obviously, Mount Fuji is extremely Very important yeah, yeah. to the Japanese yeah. national spirit. Yeah. And then the other one is Lake Ikeda, mm-hmm. and that is in Kyushu. And it's interesting because did did you see what the what her father said regarding the lake when they see it on the TV about Mothra? Remind me real quick. I probably noticed it. He but... says that's where Saigo Takamori was exiled. Oh. And she was like, oh, yeah. He was exiled over 100 years ago in the same place that Mothra shows up, and he is an absolutely legendary figure in Japanese history. Oh, really? Yes, he is known as like the last samurai. That's how important that is. Oh, because it was in like the mid 1800s, and it was essentially a rebellion that was that had to be put down by the central authorities. Oh. But he, and then yeah. And then he uh, committed suicide, or had someone help him commit suicide. Uh, sepulchre. Um, yeah, that's what was going on. But it was just in that one line, the Japanese knew what he was talking about. We didn't. I wish I had looked that up. That's a, that is fascinating. Yeah. So he's just absolutely legendary figure. So the jap that's that's where the Japanese national spirit comes from. In that is because that's where he was exiled. <sighs> Obviously, there's the trivia item about the actor who plays Godzilla, who is Mizuho Yoshida, mm-hmm. and he, we, we, you know, we, you see him at about 102.48 into the movie, and he's behind our twin girls, who are if, who are also <laughs> actresses, and they've been in quite a few movies and TV shows, too.
1: Including Gamera 2,
0: if uh-huh. I remember correctly. Yep. And they're a reference to the Shobujin. They're an homage to the Jean. Yeah, we're obliquely referencing the Jean mm-hmm. uh, that way, but, but he's the guy that's behind them. Mm-hmm. And so you have to go to that particular He's a very part of the tall movie. man. Yeah. Very tall man. That's why he they wanted him in this because the They wanted a taller Godzilla. Yeah, they wanted a taller Godzilla in this. And speaking of that, we can get to the the whole how the Kaiju look and whether we like it or not and blah 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 blah. All that. Yeah, the Godzilla, Godzilla looks great. Yeah. This is a very distinct design for because Godzilla. Because it's a very distinct purpose. And it's a very distinct yeah. type of Godzilla that we have in this. Yeah. It, it, we have angry, destructive, I want to kill you right now, Godzilla.
1: Yeah. This is probably the most evil Godzilla, I think, in the entire franchise because he is
0: purposefully destroying. And the white eyes. That the white looks eyes. Very appropriate. Yeah. For this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's to make a point. And we, we can have a different kind of Godzilla and not go into a severe panic. Yeah, <laughs> I think this looks great, though.
1: And, but I do think it definitely plays into th- what they're doing here, because this is as we mentioned in one of our earliest episodes, the this idea of Godzilla representing the war dead is something that they had talked about in the original film. And now yeah, they're actually is, doing
0: it. Yeah, this has been around for a really long
1: time. Yeah. This idea. So the, Finally somebody did something. They're bringing it to the forefront and changing the origin I think there's some hints about some of the atomic stuff, but he is specifically said to be a supernatural creature, which is not something that we're used to in these movies. We're used to Mothra being supernatural,
0: but not Godzilla. Yeah. Before it was like, Oh, there's Mothra in this movie in this Shoah era film. So this is more of a fantasy movie because of that, or at least makes the movie more of a fantasy film. And in this it's, fantasy from really the beginning because they were changing the whole formula.
1: Yeah, and I know that there were some in the fan base that didn't necessarily like this portrayal of Godzilla being supernatural in nature, being purely evil. They didn't respond to that very well, but I'm one of those people who is used to the wide breadth of characterization that Godzilla can have.
0: So I'm not put off by it. Now... The studio, this was originally supposed to be Angerus and Varan.
1: Yes. That was what Kaneko wanted to do.
0: Right. So then it was changed by the studio to Mothra and King Ghidorah. Because they were more popular. More marketable, more exposure, more tickets, more m- money. Money. Yeah. Uh, it's the one
1: place where this movie in one regard, plays it safe.
0: Should have let them have Anguirus and Varon. Cause then you would have propped up two other Kaiju that were being ignored. So you could do something with that instead yeah. of inventing new monsters, which thing, you know, like we said, they're probably out of ideas by this point with <laughs> monsters, but the, I would have liked Anguirus and Varon and I would have thought it was okay. There's enough going on with this movie. That's good. The fact that it's Mothra and King Ghidorah doesn't make me like it more, actually, because it, it, it's in this kind of a story, in this kind of a setting, that you don't need those two. And that's, so, yeah, too bad that the studio insisted on doing something different with this, because I think they lost out. They could have really done a lot more with two other kaiju and put them in more of a prominent position.
1: Yeah. Well, and Varan already had some sort of spiritual connection anyway. It's not too much of a stretch to make him a purely supernatural creature because there was some supernatural connotations with him in his original movie. And people like
0: Angris anyway.
1: Yeah. I mean, Angerus. I mean, he's kind of a second string kaiju in the in the Toho Pantheon. But still, I would think Angerus would still be popular enough.
0: And making it more prominent would have helped.
1: Yeah, I mean they kept they kept Baragon, it. at the very least. Yeah, although the poor the poor guy gets left out of the title. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which just tells you what who they thought were the most marketable ones in this, even though Barragon is the first kaiju we see.
0: Yeah, and then Godzilla has Varan ish head, so they, they that's how they incorporated some of Varan into it. Mm-hmm. Was that look? But then. That's the one thing that, while well, we're on Gatorade, I guess, that's the one thing I have a problem with. You and a lot it's, of other fans. It's too much. I Well, when we first talked about it years ago, I didn't have a problem with it as much. And then you said you did, and then I was like, well, I can see why people would. I it's, can see why fans would, too.
1: It's the most radical Interpretation and presentation of Ghidorah really in the entire franchise, which is bold. I will give him that. Ghidorah's the, the hero in this against a villainous Godzilla. So that's a huge role reversal. Yeah, because it's, it's the encar- monster
0: that made Godzilla more of a character and more friendly at the beginning, at the outset. So, and since I love the show series so much anyway, I don't, I, I'm kind of really curmudgeonly about changing Ghidorah around too much, whether it's the look or the role. Because the original role of being Godzilla's arch nemesis works extremely well.
1: Yeah. This would... But again,
0: this goes back to the studio and and their... Yeah. Their problems. And that's why. And so we can talk about this... Forever about well, it's not a space monster, and it's not this, and it's not that, and it doesn't look. I'm quite not bothered right, but... by the supernatural origin, I, really. That's not as much of a problem. Yeah, Just I, I the think role I w- of good guy is my is yeah a bit more. Of a I think I take. But, I, I,
1: I I like this more than, at least in execution, I like this better than the futuristic bioweapon thing from the 90s. But... Well,
0: although in the 90s he was still the arch nemesis of Godzilla. This is true. That's but what I it, liked it's, about that.
1: It's it's a lot like doing a reboot of Batman and making Batman the villain and the Joker, the
0: hero. Well, to an extent. Yeah. it, it is similar to that. Yeah. But other so than it, that, it's though, th- this also was the first woman who ever played a Kaiju. Yeah. Uh, she was uh, playing Baragon. Now Mothra, I was able to accept better, even though it's the whole butterfly look instead of a moth. It's different. I yeah. like the, I like the show look better and the nineties Mothra looked fine in the '92 movie too. For me, yeah. uh, This is different. I liked it. It's pretty.
1: Yeah, definitely pretty. pretty. And And she has some wasp-like aspects uh, to her too. Her thorax can move around, and she can shoot stingers. Uh They gave her a new power.
0: Yeah, and then they took other powers away. Yeah, messing around with that.
1: Yeah, well, the intention for doing that was the to make Godzilla look more imposing, more powerful. Yeah, so they power down the other monsters in this even yeah. though because Mothra in the movie's previous to this would have been able to handle Godzilla pretty well and Ghidorah as well but none and, of them yeah, could really stand up to him except killed Ghidorah, killed Ghidorah really at the end <laughs> yeah but that's because we have it's like 30, <laughs> 30 seconds yeah except we it's funny cuz we have this scene where Mothra sacrifices herself to save Ghidorah I think the explanation for that it was that the the monsters because they were defeated by ancient Japanese and then put into yeah, sleep yeah. and they 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 were woken up before they were supposed to because they talked about Ghidorah having eight heads mm-hmm. now Ghidorah well has and this
0: thousand year old dragon but has been a thousand years and yeah you know, yeah so they're like they're like literally handicapping the the other monsters yeah <laughs> but, but also Ghidorah was way bigger than Godzilla in in um, all of the other of movies. Our, yeah yeah and yeah. it, it's a and it's a pretty big difference too yes but, the, but this time the sizes are, are done differently it's because Godzilla's taller and etc 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 um really the the only complaint I have about this movie is what the studio did is not what the movie, movie intended and so I'm not going to take it out of the movie at all because I think angus and Veron would have been really good
1: yeah i do wish that they had been
0: included yeah so just left it alone but oh well
1: a couple quick little funny notes that uh, i wanted to mention before we moved on is there's actually some kind of humorous product placements that are in this like if you in the during the yokohama battle you can see the warner
0: brothers logo yeah i saw yeah,
1: yeah which is a little ironic because the warner brothers is producing uh the uh the legendary films now
0: mm-hmm, for the
1: monster verse <laughs> so it's almost anticipating that but i think my favorite one is when yuri goes to the bike shop and she's with the old man and she he asks her oh who do you work for and she says oh i work for bs digital q and she's like oh you mean bridgestone and she just smiles knowingly like yes
0: (laughs) well she's partially taken aback a bit by by what he's saying She's like uh yeah sure like Uh huh. <laughs> it's
1: it's a it's a wonderful piece of subtle humor.
0: Yeah, which the, the, the BS digital cue is like a running joke, which is good to have, and and it reminds me that their newsroom, by the way, reminds me of King Kong versus Godzilla when they were doing yes. the whole Salary Man mm-hmm. spin on you know spinning that into Godzilla. But um, the and then the guy with the the wig and the and the gum and the cigarettes and the <laughs> stuff like that, he was good. Mm-hmm. It's not, like, in-your-face comic relief. It's just... Yeah. She is looking at his hairline, and she's like, ah, and he's like, and moments like that. That's the kind of humor that you have in a Godzilla movie. One thing that is known for happening to, especially to a lot of Americans mostly, is 9-11. Although there were some Japanese who were killed in that incident as well, but... The AMC network on television, they actually stopped showing Godzilla movies after 9-11. And so finally, this series of movies has something in common with John Lennon. That will lead us into our part three, which will be coming up next. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio.
1: For part three of the podcast, we'll be discussing topics that are either brought up by the film itself or were going on at the time that the film was released. In this case, it's a little bit of both. We'll be talking about the election of Koizumi, the USS Greenville
0: collision, and the many other events of 2001. We left off in the last episode with Prime Minister Mori, and he is—he uh, was the, our gaffe machine. But <laughs>
1: With single digit approval ratings. Yeah,
0: usually after you have a prime minister like that. You finally want to end up with something that's a notch above. And that's what the LDP got when they chose uh, Junichiro Koizumi. Prime Minister from 2001 to 2006, and 2001 is when our movie was released.
1: Koizumi had been involved with Japanese politics for quite some time before he became Prime Minister. He was elected as a member of the lower house for the Kanagawa 11th District in 1972, and actually won re-election ten times. And then over the, the next couple of decades, he held several important high-ranking political positions. He had a reputation in the LDP for being something of a maverick. Uh, he and several other leaders led a dialogue across party lines concerning Japan becoming a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, which was unpopular with, uh, with the LDP. And it, again, it's something we've talked about in a previous episode, the, Japan's relation to the U.N., And while nothing came to fruition, it helped him form important relationships for his political career. And he also, interestingly, ran unsuccessfully for president of the LDP in both 1995 and 1998. Koizumi was considered a a bit of a dark horse when he was running for election after Mori resigned, but he did have a very decided victory in there. But not only was Koizumi elected, the LDP had a landslide victory and gained a, in the upper house. And they uh, they were all using the the campaign slogan "Let's change." Among his domestic uh, his domestic policy accomplishments, uh, he did a lot of economic reform and he privatized the Japanese postal service. And he made use of something that in Japanese is called the Honobuto no Hoshin or the Basic Policies for Economic and Fiscal Management and Reform, or as he liked to call it, the Big Boned Policy. This was a set of guidelines used by the Japanese government to formulate fiscal and economic policies. He used it to shift primary accountability for such matters from the Ministry of Finance and other government officials to members of the national diet who represent the people. Although privatizing the Japanese post concerned many citizens for fear of losing access to basic services such as banking. He also pledged to reform a pension system overburdened by rising elderly population and declining revenues, improve local government fiscal situations, and to approve four road-related public corporations. He succeeded in cutting state pensions, raising health insurance premiums, and changing laws to allow companies to hire more temporary
0: workers at lower wages. Then these are some of the perennial problems that Japan has had, which is trying to cut public spending as well as attempting to make the pension system last longer and long enough for people because the pension system is, is one of the most overloaded pension systems because of so many people collecting on it. It's a, there's a lot of pressure on the government to try to make things work and stretch as much as possible. The part about the temps is probably uh, something that a lot of people would not be very supportive for because a lot of temps are worked very hard and they don't have as much benefits but it is uh, literally something that some believe had to be used. In many ways, he changed the face of
1: the LDP. He moved its base from traditional agrarian rural areas to
0: neoliberal urban areas since Japan's population was moving to cities. Long term, the, the pattern has been that the smaller villages that people are moving to larger cities, either regionally large cities, or uh, the two biggest ones that are being moved to, of course, are Tokyo and Osaka. But there's, it's, a, it's a very long-term trend, and there are a lot of uh, villages that don't have very many people, and the, the, the village life is not what it used to be. Then, then there's an incentive for the LDP to try to expand its voter base, because you don't want your voter base to be dying if you want to stay in power that does plug into the long-term problem also of where the rural areas of Japan have more voting representation than some of the more urban areas and it's Yeah, it
1: all has to do with how they divide up the political districts.
0: Right, and it's been something that uh, there have been a f- quite a few large figures in Japan's political life that say, hey, this is something that really needs to be fixed. To everybody it's you know, sort of like the problem in the United States with, I guess, redistricting and how <laughs> gerrymandering, gerrymandering specifically uh, uh, of those districts. And so with with Japan, it's uh, it's not a directly the same thing, but it's quite similar. Getting back to Koizumi, he also
1: Slowed the LDP subsidies for infrastructure and industrial development in rural areas, which goes back to a little bit what we were talking about just now, which made him a controversial, though very popular figure. So it shouldn't come as no surprise that Koizumi often saw opposition from his own party. It mostly came from the old guard who had connections to the construction and real estate industries. Some even thought. He wanted to dismantle the LDP like Gorbachev did the Soviet Union. That isn't to say that everything went exactly how Koizumi necessarily would have wanted. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. (laughs) Some banks and unprofitable companies in Japan did have to be bailed out, and the national debt did continue to rise. The Economy did improve under his leadership, but he was criticized for creating an underclass of part-time and temporary workers who were easy to fire. So, if you were
0: a temp worker, you may have not been a Koizumi fan. The economy got somewhat better, but then the the big problem is the debt because of the high, very high debt to GDP ratio, and considering how big Japan's economy is, the debt that they have is yeah. is just a really massive and. There, Especially in Japan, there's there are not very many methods that are available to change how the government deficit is handled. Getting to matters of
1: foreign policy, Koizumi took a much stronger stance on a lot of things compared to a lot of his predecessors. He went further in the U.S.-Japanese relations by adamantly supporting the U.S. in its war on terrorism. As we mentioned in episode 5, Koizumi deployed the JSDF to Iraq to assist the U.S. in the war on terror. This was the first time the Japanese military had been deployed into an active foreign war since the end of World War II. This was in large part because he was friends with President George W. Bush. In fact, the first time they met at Camp David, he and Bush played catch with
0: a baseball. So they had a very warm relationship. He was also a huge Elvis fan. I remember that from uh, back when he was prime minister and he visited the U.S. He wanted to go to Graceland, I believe. Yes, uh, he, he loved Elvis because, interestingly, they share a birthday.
1: <laughs> they were both born on January 8th. And in 2006, he went with the Bushes to Graceland and he, he got to impersonate the king of rock and roll by singing some of his songs. He wore the Elvis's trademark sunglasses. He was also a lot more assertive with North Korea, especially concerning the, their abductions of foreign citizens, including the Japanese, as well as their nuclear development.
0: Yeah, most of the abductions were primarily Japanese. But he did
1: visit Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, on September 17th, 2002, and met with Kim Jong-il. The North Korean leader was described as being, quote, stiff and nervous. I wonder why.
0: Yeah, and of course, the two two countries have, like, really terrible relations.
1: Both of them did release a joint statement calling for the normalization of relations between the countries, and Kim even apologized for the abductions, but it did little to alleviate
0: the outrage over it. Yeah, and it didn't do much with the big picture of Korea, either.
1: Koizumi also generated some controversy by visiting the Yasukuni Shrine every year while he was prime minister, as we mentioned in episode 20. However, on the 60th anniversary of Japan's surrender in 2005, he said something that I think is very relevant to this film, which was that Japan was deeply saddened by the suffering it caused in the war and that it would never again take the, quote, path of war. He said he didn't go to the shrine for the war criminals, but to mourn for those who had, who made sacrifices during the war, which is relevant because he does have a bit of a personal connection to this. He had a cousin in the war who was a kamikaze pilot. Koizumi was an incredibly popular leader. At his
0: peak in June
1: 2001, he had an approval rating of
0: 85%. The highest I can think of recently was the first Bush president under uh, during the first Gulf War, and that was eighty seven percent. Wow, which is astronomical. And because of this,
1: Koizumi actually had several nicknames, including Lionheart, which he got for his wavy gray hair and his fierce spirit. By the way, he looks a lot like Richard Gere mm-hmm. with that hair. I love how he looks. He stands out. Yeah, he really does. I I know. I heard it. He did a. An appearance with Richard Gere once, just to have a little bit of fun. (laughs) That's good. He was also nicknamed Maverick, for obvious reasons. And he was also called Jun Chan, which is interesting, because Chan is a Japanese honorific that denotes familiarity. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, in 2005, he dissolved the House of Representatives and called for a snap election, wherein he expelled rebel factions of the LDP and elected 83 new members that were nicknamed Koizumi Children. And this was the party's biggest election victory since
0: 1986. A lot of the Koizumi Children, uh, as they're known, they are still members of the Diet to this day. But a lot of them came in at that time.
1: Koizumi stepped down from office in 2006 in accordance with LDP rules. However, he didn't appoint a party successor as his predecessors had done. He was succeeded by the now current Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. He retired from politics in 2008 and retained his diet seat until the 2009 election when his son Shinjiro won it. Since retirement, he hasn't granted any requests for an interview or TV appearance, but he has given
0: speeches and spoken privately with reporters. His activities as of late uh, include promoting the opinion that no, uh, None of the nuclear plants should be restarted and that Japan should completely rid itself of nuclear energy, which is uh, against the policy of the uh, LDP at this time.
1: And to close out our discussion of uh, Koizumi, I thought I'd bring up a, just a couple of fun little facts. We mentioned he loves Elvis. He's a big music fan in general. He loves the classical works of Richard Wagner and the film scores of Ennio Morricone. And weirdly enough, he likes... a Japanese metal band called X-Japan. He even used one of their songs in his commercials in 2001. (laughs) So he's got a very wide taste for music. And something that our listeners will find particularly interesting is he has a tokusatsu connection. He's actually voiced an Ultraman character. (laughs) Did you know that, Brian? No, I didn't before I saw that. Yeah. Uh, he did the voice of Ultraman King in a 2009 film called Mega Monster Battle Ultra Galaxy, which was a role he took at the insistence of his son Shinjiro. Hmm. I can't think of any time that something like that's happened anywhere else. I mean, how interesting would it have been to have you know, a former U.S. president voice acting <laughs> in a film of some kind? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's good. It's really cool.
1: I mean, the only thing I think of that's even close is Arnold Schwarzenegger appearing in the first Expendables, and they kind of play around with the idea that he's like some big political leader now. Mm. (laughs) But he was an actor before then, so it's not as weird.
0: The USS Greenville collision was something that I uh, did not remember happening at the time because I was really busy in uh, college and stuff. But it's something that I think I saw in the papers Very briefly when it happened, but then because there's so much other news going on that year that this this got kind of sidelined.
1: This was a collision between the Japanese fishing vessel Ahime Maru and the the Greenville, which was a U.S. Navy submarine, happened February 9th, 2001, nine nautical miles off the south coast of of Oahu, Hawaii. The Greenville was demonstrating an emergency ballast blow surfacing maneuver for several VIP civilian passengers resurfacing under the fishing vessel. The Maru uh, was on a 74-day voyage to train high schoolers interested in fishing as a career. Of the 35 people aboard the ship at the collision, 13 were students and 2 were teachers. While the Greenfield suffered some damage, the Maru sank within 10 minutes. 26 people were rescued, but 9 others, including 4 students and the 2 teachers, were never found. It was believed they were probably in the ship's galley and engine rooms when the ship sank. The event became a hot-button issue because the Japanese were upset that civilians were on the bridge of the Greenville at the time of the collision, and they were upset that the captain, Commander Scott Waddle, didn't apologize immediately after the accident. A court of inquiry was held for Waddle and several other crew members... But a court-martial wasn't convened because of a lack of criminal intent and deliberate misconduct. Instead, non-judicial punishments were doled out. This incident put considerable strain on U.S.-Japan relations. It showed that despite the strength of the alliance,
0: things weren't always cozy between the two countries. As we said, nine eleven occurred during this year, of course, and uh it did hurt the Japanese economy some. Uh on the actual events though of uh on that day, uh there were twenty-four Japanese uh who were killed. Um and that was uh in the World Trade Center.
1: Speaking of economic effects,
0: what was the economic figures for this year, Brian? 035 percent growth. Hmm. That's it. The United States went into a recession actually after nine eleven. Obviously. Uh but there was a uh, there was not um a recession in japan for the year though our next movie is a is another godzilla film that has a female main character we're back to the tezuka trilogy as i call it mm-hmm. and we so we don't have any more interruptions in our trilogy and uh our next two films will be by tezuka but this is a one that is of the new the our latest Mecha Godzilla appearance <laughs> yeah, I <don't> know there <laughs> it's our third or if we count the movies fourth yeah <laughs> Godzilla against Mecha Godzilla
1: yeah uh, I, this one will be interesting the I have some some opinions yeah. on this one <laughs> we'll see you next time if you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback we'd love to hear from you our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook.
0: Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Churchill, and I edited this podcast.
1: And I'm Nathan Marchant, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara!